0: Some days you remember um, much better than others. So one of those days for me was uh, probably when I I was thinking about it. I was probably 23, 24 years old. I, at that point, was working on my Master's of Divinity. I was in seminary and also an intern at a church and kind of juggling lots of things in life at that point. I remember going to class one day, and I, I just barely sat down, and they said, there's a call for you in the office. And so I went and went to the seminary office, and on the other end of the phone was my pastor at the time, and he said, Curtis, I'm, I'm getting ready to throw you in the fire. Well, then that didn't sound good. That didn't sound good. I, at that point, would much have preferred just staying in Hebrew class than uh, what he had in mind, which I did not know at the time. He says, I, I need you to do something for me today, Curtis. I need you, I need you to officiate a funeral. Well, again, I'm, I'm 23 to 24. I, I had only been to one other funeral in my life. And I said, well, I, I've never done one of these. I've never officiated that. And uh, those that know me well know how much I like the plan, how much I like to be prepared, so you can just imagine this is hitting every sort of panic button inside of me. He said, "Well, I, I'm going to need you to do it." And uh, Curtis, the funeral's today. It's actually at 11:30, so it's about nine o'clock in the morning. And there had been some sort of mix-up in the office, and I, well, you're you're going to have to talk me through it. I don't know what I don't even know what I'm doing. said, I'll talk you through it, but can you do it? And I I said, I can do it. All right, I'll do it, but you got to help me. He said, he said he can do it. And I hear a door shut and I hear like the ignition and he and the other pastors ended up, they were going to some sort of conference. And so I was very unsettled at that moment as like any help I might've had, like they're getting in the car going. He says, I'll I'll call you back. I'll talk you through it. And so, uh, yeah, I actually awaited that call. So he gave me some ideas about how to piece together an order of service and what to say. And I, no lie, a couple hours later, there I am. And uh, I'm greeting, I'm greeting a, a grieving widow and our daughter and trying to figure out what in the world has happened. And, and I think everyone realized Yeah, this is the rookie's first time, (laughs) I think. I mean, you just kind of sense that in the audience, and I was perceptive enough. Like, I think there was kind of collectively pulling for me to not just make a train wreck out out of the whole thing. And I think there was also, like, people were very gracious, like, wow, it was very, very meaningful. (laughs) I'm not sure what I said, but I'm glad it was meaningful. Um, As I said, I'm pretty certain I'll never forget that day. Yeah, over time, like... I've been in that spot probably a couple hundred times now, standing at the intersection of God and grief and death and loss and eternity and resurrection. But, but from that day, from that first time I had that, that experience, I, I don't think I've ever, ever really thought of things exactly the same since that day. When I come to stories like the one we're going to read in the Bible today. It really does inform that all those experiences, particularly that experience, certainly forms my thinking as is, is swirling in my mind. So I, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to First Kings seventeen. First Kings seventeen. We've been walking through the story of Elijah, and previously Elijah had done; I mean, God had accomplished this miracle through Elijah to feed a widow and her son. Well, there's another story that goes along with this widow and her son that we'll read today. First Kings 17. And this is what I can, I, can I ask you to do something even before we dive into the story? Can I ask you not just to look for a couple points of application for yourself or try to find the moral of the story? Can I ask you, and this is actually what I pray most weeks, and that is that the story would be a conduit for the Lord to work on your heart. That's what, that's what would be an answer to prayer, my prayer this morning, is that this story that we're going to read would be a conduit that God would go to work on your heart and that he would speak to you today. 1 Kings 17, verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, the son became ill. His illness was so severe, there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me? O man of God, you've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance. You've come to me to cause the death of my son. He said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his bed. He cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God. Have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself over or upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again. And he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. If you're going to understand this story, think right out of the gate, you're going to have to understand that God provides and God perplexes. Those are words that I found in in reading this week, so not my words, but I think they're well put together for this passage. God provides and God perplexes. I think we need to make sure we're working hard enough to process this story through the widow's perspective. And, and through the widow's perspective, God had provided. You see, verse 17 starts out like this. You have scripture in front of you. It says, after this, well, after what? Well, you just kind of bump up to verse 16, and, and it's after this, after the jar of flour was never spent, and after the jug of oil never became empty, after God had provided day after day, probably week after week, month after month, God had provided for that widow. And after that, it seemed like God's provision gave every indication that God would keep doing this, that no harm would come to this lady. That's, that's certainly what she expected. That's what you would expect. It's what I would expect. Great confidence. Again, as we try to think through what it felt like to be this widow, think about all that God had brought her through. So she is a widow. And the, the way the Hebrew words, it doesn't, tell, it, it, it doesn't tell us the exact age, but it it refers to him in the term, terminology of a boy. So I, I can put that together and probably assume this lady's husband hadn't passed away for that long. She's, she's a single mom in a culture without WIC, without social security, without any sort of safety net that we're grateful is built in, which, which still doesn't make life easier, but at least it's something. All she has at this point, when her husband dies, all she has, humanly speaking, is is that boy. For the present, that's all she has. This is what's going to wake her up in the morning. This is what's probably going to push her through many days. And not just the present, but the future. So if you think, like, what could stabilize her situation... What well, is that young boy growing up in a patriarchal society where the, the, the men are going to run and own property and, and like take care of things? It will be him. And so you can imagine her hopes just in the present, but also for the future, in are, are wrapped up in this young man. Some of you are so close to family, you know exactly exactly what this might feel like. You can't even begin to fathom what it would mean to lose. Your child or your grandchild or your, your niece or your nephew. You can't imagine. What's interesting is this lady actually had to imagine what that would look like previously in 1 Kings 17. So in verse 12 she had to think about when when she doesn't have anything in her cupboard she had to think about what will it look like if this boy dies of starvation. So it's just interesting to me she had steeled herself saying well I guess he'll eat I'll eat and we'll die. She had faced that once, but now she's having to face it again after having some measure of relief, after having seen God pro- provide for her on a regular basis. Now she has to face it again, and nothing could have prepared her for the morning her, her son got sick. Nothing could have prepared her for the afternoon when he just wasn't getting better. Nothing could have prepared her for those days. I mean, this is, this is so difficult, and then the end of verse 17, is he stops breathing. When that happens, when you end up at the intersection of death and God and his power and his control, when you come to that intersection, you're generally going to come down, you're you're going to go down a few different roads and eventually, I mean, all we have to do is live long enough and we'll, we'll face some of these things. And none are easy to walk down. We see the road that she went down. So how does she process? How does she process God and the loss of her son? Well, this is how she puts it together. We have it in verse 18. She says to Elijah, what, what have you against me? And, and, and you're bringing, is this why you've come? Just to bring my sin to remembrance so that may, may, maybe she's thinking, I know. I knew it would catch up with me. Maybe it's some sin she had done in the past, or maybe she has a good grasp of we all are sinners. All of us fall short of God's glory. Her perspective when, when her world blows up is, I knew this would happen. And she's bitter. She even takes a swipe at Elijah, like, why did, why did you have to come and then put me on God's radar? Because now he knows where I am, and look what He's done. Why would you have to do that, Elijah?" She has some defective theology, but before we just trounce on that, it is not that hard for you and I to put things together just like that. Sometimes we're, we're more formed by our idea of karma than we are God's Word. Somehow, yeah, this has just swung back around and we did that thing and now it's all like catching up. So that's one path and that's the path she goes down. To. There is another, there's a, another path we could go down as well and that is not so much saying, God, I knew you'd finally catch up with me, but God, what are you doing? I've not done anything wrong. And that one's an easy, easy path to go down, isn't it? Something happens like that and you say, what did I do? I'm trying my best. Like, what did I do to deserve this? Why did, why did that person live and you took this person? What did I do? What, what's wrong with me? Why is this happening to me? I can tell you, as you, if you walk very far down both those roads, and both of them are very natural and easy to walk down, I will tell you both of those prove to be very unsatisfying. And I'm not sure they'll ever answer questions. Because here is what you come to learn over time as you walk with the Lord, is that God does provide and God does Perplex. And, and there aren't neat formulas where you can discern it all. That isn't to say that God's random. I don't believe God's random. It is to say, though, there there are, are times where the Lord gives and the times where the Lord takes away. And I'm not always sure why. I I, I can't perfectly understand the motivation of God as he carries out his will. Sometimes it's confusing. I feel like I have decent training, decent theological training, and I still am far from figuring it out, which isn't to say there aren't any answers to these kinds of questions, which isn't to say there's not any help. There is some help. So, so I recognize when, when we are suffering and when we experience loss, I recognize the truth of 2 Corinthians 4 that that this light momentary affliction is preparing us for something far better. I understand that. And I do understand that in 1 Peter where like the the trial of your faith produces something so much stronger and so much better. I, I understand that. And I can appreciate that as Romans 8 talks about it, we live in a world that is just groaning and crying and, and saying this can't be the way it was always meant to be. Surely not. And the whole creation groans and we groan as individuals. And God hears that. And I, I can understand how God would take a thorn in the flesh and how he would say to Paul, I'm not removing it, but my grace is going to be sufficient for my, my power, my strength is going to be shown in this weakness of yours. So again, it's not as if I don't have like any sort of answers or any sort of understanding. It is to say this though, even as I wrestle through those questions, I don't think there's ever a time where I just tie things up in a nice neat bow and go, oh, well that's how, oh yeah, there it is. Not when it comes to these kinds of things. The pain's too deep. And in times, I must admit, God is perplexing. As a person, I want to tell you, like, that should give you great permission to grieve and to sorrow. I don't know that Christians always feel that. I wonder sometimes if we feel like, well, if I really had faith or if I really believed in heaven and uh, if I really I trusted God, I wouldn't feel so sad. And feel like there's such a loss. But I think as I've had to intersect some things in my life, as I've I've had to think through being in the ER with my wife as she miscarried our first child, as if I thought of ambulance rides, as as I heard the words and began to process in a very personal way words like chemo and cancer and hospice as I got news driving down Red Mill Road and all I could do after getting the news and the phone was pull into a parking lot and just sob. The first time you walk into a sanctuary when you've experienced something like that, the first time you like begin to try to form words to pray and you know you're talking to God, all I can tell you is that you have permission to grieve and to sorrow. I think the Bible gives us that. I think it's a grace that we can do that and lament. I think as a pastor, I, I want to tell you, I want our church to be a place where we don't run from that. Covered over with like a couple songs and a couple Bible verses and see, it's all better now. As a, as a pastor, I want our church to be a place where we hang in there with friends, even when they're, they're, they're dealing with stuff for a long time, where we're familiar with not just some portions of scripture, but we actually know some of the bitter psalms and we actually are familiar with Jeremiah and we're familiar with Lamentations and f- we're familiar with the book of Job and we're familiar with Jesus' cry in, in the Garden of Gethsemane where he is pouring out his heart. That we're, we're very familiar with those and we know what it means to be joyful beyond comparison because of what Christ has done for us and we know what it's like to sorrow because of sin and the deep pain that it causes Do you feel the sorrow of this woman? Have you seen God provide for you, but also perplex you? This story, I think, can meet you in some important places. But as you keep reading, you read another picture. And that's the picture of Elijah. So what does he do? This woman's brokenhearted. He seems like a man of action. He just, give me your son. That's all we have him saying. That's the only words. Give me your son. And he takes the son. And what happens as the story unfolds? is something I... I, I just would like for us to take a slight detour and think about a little bit. Because this story in the Bible, the story of this young son who dies, and Elijah prays and he comes back to life, this story does what so many stories in the Bible make you do. It makes you handle some things and process some things. If we accept that the biblical authors, the writers of the books of the Bible, And by that, I mean the ones that God inspired, breathed out his words through these human authors. If we take them on the terms that they're given, then the authors present what what happens in Scripture as fact, as truth. So it's not not as if, well, there's this legend that went around. Not the way you read Scripture. It's not presenting it that way. You have to distort an understanding if you're going to go that route or some allegory or some fable or some tall tale that maybe you see a little glimmer of something in. That's not the way Scripture presents it. It presents it that like these things happened. And at the same time, it presents these as true, but it also says, and it's supernatural. And you couldn't go into a laboratory and reproduce it. It holds those things side by side again and again in Scripture. And if you want to do away with that, you're going to have a very, very thin Bible. Because so much of Scripture deals in, in the realm of this supernatural. And, and the, the biblical authors don't apologize or explain or try to equivocate. It just says, this happened. You can't read the Bible without that, making up your mind about that. What do you think about that? What do you think about the Bible presenting these things as true, but also saying there are things that happen?s supernaturally, sometimes in the world. There are a lot of people in the world where they just have already ruled out any sort of supernatural thing. It just can't happen. I don't believe it. Well, why don't you believe it? Because it can't happen. Why well, can't it happen. I don't believe it. And you just kind of go around in a circle. It's a presupposition. You rule out it can't happen. So then you go to the Bible and go, I don't think it happened because I don't think these things can happen. Most of the world doesn't think like that, though. Most of history hasn't thought like that. The supernatural is, if you can't go and, like, check it out on a laboratory, then it, it really isn't true. Most of the world and most of history would be on the opposite side of that. I think God hardwired us to know there are things that we can't always explain. And there are certainly things like love and bravery and loyalty and compassion and mercy that I don't think we will ever be able to be dissected by, like, yeah, it's a chemical reaction, nothing more. That, that's so unsatisfying. So we come to the Bible, and, and we have to understand it's presenting this as truth, and, and it's supernatural. These things don't happen all the time. But in God's power, they can happen. So with that detour, let's, let's come back to the text. Look at verse 20. This is what Elijah does. He's taking the boy upstairs and he cries out to the Lord. No spooky, abnormal thing. No magical chant or incantation. Didn't mix up a potion. We're not in Harry Potter world. We're not in Disney Princess world. What does Elijah do? You tell me what he does in verse 20. He cries out to the Lord. He prays. He's not a superhero. He's praised. We have a a man crying out to God. And remember that James said that Elijah was as human as we are. And this is what we're designed to do. God designed humans to pray. God has designed humans to pray. The fact that we need to pray, if if I could put it this way, it's a feature, not a bug. this This is what we were made to do. It's depend on the Lord and talk to him. Elijah first prays and he shares in the pain of that widow. I mean, the prayer in verse 20 sounds a lot like what she had just said. He prays this way in verse 20. He says, oh, Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? That sounds like exactly like what she had just prayed. You know what that tells me? Elijah had taken her grief and had, had walked side by side enough with her to, to process that from her lens. Like this is what it feels like, Lord. And so he verbalizes a prayer that she is she's probably making as well, grieving and hurting. It says he stretches out three times at some sort of ancient prophetic ritual. And then he prays again. Did you notice that in verse twenty one? And this is his prayer, it's different than the first prayer. So he cries out to the Lord, Oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And what are the first few words of verse twenty two? and the Lord listened. Elijah didn't have a, a potion or an incantation. He prayed. The stories in the Bible aren't meant to be 100% personal guarantees that God will do the exact same thing he did there in every situation. There are stories in the Bible that remind us that all prayers aren't answered in the same way. So, The book of Ruth tells us about Naomi, whose husband and sons died. I'm sure she prayed, and they died. We read of the prayer that David prayed for his unborn child, conceived with Bathsheba. God didn't answer that prayer in the same way. No miraculous resurrection. Uh, we, We could think of Rachel who died in childbirth. I'm sure Jacob was praying that would not happen. God doesn't always answer things the exact same way. We've got to be careful that we don't think of prayer as some sort of game. I have a friend who, for this purpose, will remain nameless, but he knows exactly, you know that claw game that is in restaurants and like amusement parks where you go and it drops and... Yeah, yeah, most of us never can get anything out of that. My friend, on the other hand, every single time. coins in... He knows how to work those levers, gets it. What do you know? It happens every time. Yeah, prayer's not like that. Throw a few coins in, the levers of prayer just right. You say this thing just right, just like, God, ah, just like Elijah prayed. And then it, it, it's not like that. God's not a vending machine. Get some miracle out of the deal. But God is this. God is a God who is working according to his will And for our good. It's a God who cares deeply about our grief. Said he's near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Says that the righteous cry and the Lord hears them and delivers them. Our, Our Lord, who we pray to, we always pray in Jesus' name. Jesus is the one who's prayed the bitter prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane, if possible, Lord, if possible. Nevertheless, your will be done. And at the end of the day, that that is where we get, right? At our best, we get, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And we have utter confidence that he can do it, and he will do whatever is best. Elijah prays. The story story closes with one more image. Got a widow crying, and Elijah praying. And then there's that, that final image of a son who comes back to life. Verse 22, the Lord listened, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah takes the child, brings him down, and Elijah says, see, your son lives. Again, man, a few words. Your son's alive. Your son's alive. When I read this story, I understand that God promises and perplexes, and I understand that he's designed us to pray, but I also know in this story, I see God meets us at the point of life and death. God doesn't like remove himself from those places. God meets us at the point of life and death. That's important for us to realize because the whole story of the Old Testament, beginning with Adam in Genesis 3, is actually a story of death. It's interesting when you're reading through the Bible, you come to whole chapters where this person was born, fathered this person, he died. This person was born Father, children, he died. Lived X amount of years. This person lived, died, lived X amount of years. This person, whole chapters reminding us this person died, this person died, this person died. It's, it's, it's written all over the Bible. Death is very real. It's never portrayed as a friend, always an enemy. And even when like you know it's time, sometimes you know it's time, this person be done with their earthly life, it still is gut-wrenching. There are a couple There are occasional hiccups in the Bible where, like, death, 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 and then there's the story of Enoch, and Enoch doesn't die. The Lord takes him. More death, more death, more death. And then even the story of Elijah, we'll get to in a few weeks. He doesn't die. The Lord takes him. And even this story is another hint of of something. There must be something more. God has something more. Beyond just our, our earthly existence, God has something better prepared for us. He meets us at the point of life and death. And yet the question you, you deal with when you recognize everybody dies is this who, who could deal with the finality that death causes? Who can deal with that? Who can deal with death, which the Bible says is the wages of sin, the payment for sin. Who can deal with that? Who can deal with that in a conclusive way? And then Jesus comes on the scene. And it tells us in Mark chapter 5 that there's this man named Jairus and his daughter dies, and Jesus brings his daughter back to life. And then it tells us that there's this widow and her son dies in Luke 7, and Jesus brings the son back to life. It's almost as if it's like a a warm up, momentum, like there's a head of steam coming. Jesus, one of his best friends, Lazarus, dies, and Martha's crying out, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And you begin to see in the ministry of Jesus, okay, this person is going to do something about this problem that every single human being has, and that problem is death. Jesus is going to do something about it. He's going to come right at the intersection of life and death and grief and God and and pain and eternity and, and heaven and resurrection. He's going to go right at the center of that. He's going to be right at the core of it. That's why Jesus would say something like this in John 11 to Martha. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. And notice these words I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Either Jesus is arrogant or mistaken, or he has something to offer here. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And he puts Martha on the spot, he puts us on the spot. Do you believe this? Do you believe he's at the intersection of life and death? Do you believe that your faith in him will make all the difference? When it comes time for your life to be over, Jesus didn't just deal with death kind of, as a, kind of in an external way without getting his hands too dirty. Jesus goes into the heart of death. As a matter of fact, Hebrews words it this way. Hebrews chapter 2, it says, We see him, that's Jesus. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels still crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might do what, church? He might taste death, not as a, uh, a random passerby, but he would get in the middle of it and experience. He might taste death for everyone. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus tasted death. It's not all about Jesus' death. Because again, he stands at the crossroads of, crossroads of death and life. And, and Acts 2 says it this way, this Jesus, Mrs. Peter preaching, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed, you ended his life. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So he who tasted death, God has loosened all of that, and now he's conquered it. He stands over it. He stands victorious in it all. That's why Revelation 1 says it this way, when I saw Jesus, John saying this, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus holds all authority over death, and now, and now He opens up life. Yeah, I've lost count how many funerals that I've done. Many, f- most for believers. And as grieving as those days are, I know the one who holds the keys to death and the grave, who's alive forevermore. We sing about it. This is why I I was noticing a few weeks ago as we were just singing some of the songs, like, we actually sing a good bit about death. It's not because we're morbid. It's not an unhealthy fixation. It's actually a realistic expectation that this will end someday. Our lives will end someday. And what will give hope then? And the lives of people that we care about, that, that will end someday. I think of all the times we sing, crown him the Lord of life, who triumphed over the, over the grave, rose in victorious strife for those who he came to save. Or we sing something like, when with the ransomed in glory... His face, I at last will see. I won't be in a ground. I won't have ceased to exist. And neither will be neither will all the people that I've loved that have met the Lord already. That's why we sing the songs of joy that death could not hold him, the grave could not keep him, but he's alive. Christ is one. Yeah, these truths are the bedrock of our faith. And I, I love, I love what the widow says. The last words we have from her. Before it, it, Elijah moves on to other things. You, did you notice what she says in verse 24? She says, now I know that you're a man of God. That the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. She's had God provide for her. She's had God perplex her. She's heard the cries of Elijah in prayer. And now God has met her. I can only guess before this whole encounter with Elijah. If you had said to her, like, "What what is the meaning of your life? I think she would say. It's that boy right there. That's it. That's the only thing that matters. Once her husband had died, her, all her life consisted of, like, her son and their survival. It's very human to put all of our lives into those things. But here's the real question. It's like, what happens if those things that we, we think are ultimate and forever get taken away? What do you have then? And coming out of this story, I, I, I understand, like, she says, now I know. I understand, like, it's not all perfectly solidified. She doesn't give uh, uh, some sort of amazing account of doctrine, Bible doctrine right there. But something has started in her that is very personal to her, to where she says, now I, I know, I'm assured. Now I know. When Elijah came, she, she realized that God took notice. And at first she thought that is bad news, but bad news turned into good news because God had showed her mercy and grace. She changes. She has what we call a now I know moment. And my question is, have you had one of those? Have you had a now I know? Now I know. I get like everybody else has, but like now, now I know. Now I know there is a God. Now I'm aware that he is the ruler of everything and that he is good and that he loves me and I was made for him. Now I know. And now I know that I'm not just kind of existing out here in the world, doing my own thing, making an occasional mistake. I know I've offended this holy God. I've rebelled against him. I've not made him a priority. I've chosen to go my own way. Now I know. Now I know that when Christ Jesus came, He came for me. He lived His life for me. He died for me. He rose for me. Now I know. Now I know I. I don't have it all figured out, but I know I ought to take the next steps of putting my faith in Him, of turning from everything else, of following Him. Now I know. I would encourage you, if you know now, to do exactly what this widow did, and that is verbalize it. Go public. Tell somebody. Tell the friend that brought you. Tell one of the pastors. Tell one of the people that will be up front in just a moment to, to pray with you, to pray for you. Tell someone. Let someone know. What's the next step you need to take? Who could you talk to about this so that when you leave here, you could go, now I know. Now I know. Can I ask you to bow your head? This story gives us a lot to think about. Just a moment, I'm going to have Din come up and close us in prayer, but for right now, I want us to think about it. Are you perplexed? You're You're not going to hide it from God. He knows. Cry out to Him. Have you come to the place where you're assured in your heart? Let someone know about that. Think about right now, what what is my next step in going public with that? Take a moment or so and think about this. Then we'll close our service in prayer.